Well, today is a very important day for us because today we are going to discover and unveil the will of God for each person that is here. Pretty bold declaration, I suppose, but it is one I believe I can fulfill. I do need, though, to give a disclaimer about today's sermon. This will not be the exposition of a passage of Scripture that I normally do and like I normally do here on Sunday mornings. This is going to be mostly a topical study and a bit like a seminar in some ways, but I do trust it will be profitable for each of us. In preparation for this great discovery of God's will for our lives, we do need to review about how someone finds it and how we as Christians do not find God's will, which requires that I start with defining God's will. In theological studies, it is common to distinguish between two ways of thinking about this topic of God's will. First of all, we talk about this aspect of his will, God's revealed will, his revealed will. Now, some call this his preceptive will or even his moral will. We find this aspect of God's will in the written instructions and commands of the authoritative, inerrant, sufficient Word of God, the Scriptures. His precepts, which is why some call this his preceptive will. This is the aspect of God's will that we are supposed to be focused on, his revealed will. We are to learn what he has revealed. We are to learn what he has said, and we are to believe it and to trust it, but we are also to learn what he has said that he expects of us as to how we are to live, and then we are to, with his help, go about seeking to obey that. Now, there are many verses related to this aspect of God's will, his revealed will. For example, this aspect of his will includes his revealed plans for what he does and does not do throughout redemptive history. For example, we believe it was God's will for his son, the Lord Jesus, to come to earth to die for sins. And we know this to be true because God has revealed to us in Scripture that it was his plan, it was his will. Galatians 1 verse 4, Christ gave himself for our sins, and then it goes on to say, according to the will of God. That's why that happened. And God has revealed to us that it was his will. We also know something about his ultimate will for the future. We find that many places, but one is Ephesians 1, verses 9 and 10, right in there, Ephesians 1, it says, he made known to us the mystery of his will, and then goes on to say what that is, the summing up of all things in Christ. We know how it all ends, everything in history will be summed up in Christ because God has revealed that to us. In addition, much of the revealed will, his preceptive will, his moral will, is in the form of commands. 
as to how God, God expects his people to live. Now, we are going to be looking at one of those aspects of his revealed will and his commands when we pick back up more thoroughly with our study of 1 Thessalonians 4 down the road. But the point for now is God's revealed will, that aspect of his will, is found in Scripture. But there's another aspect of his will that we discuss sometimes. Second, God's unrevealed will. We sometimes hear that referred to as God's sovereign will, and many prefer to think of it even a little bit differently as his decretive will, God's decretive will. This is what God has decreed in his own sovereign, eternal mind, what he has decreed for all things. An example of this is, in a contrast, how they're distinguished, God's revealed will in Scripture, is that Jesus is going to return in power and glory. That's his revealed will. But his unrevealed will is precisely when that will take place. He has not revealed that. This unrevealed will also includes God's decrees related to all the particulars of what will happen in your life and my life. Now, for most people, when we get on this subject, finding the will of God, it is this aspect that they're actually thinking about. They want to know God's will. They want to know things like, well, which job should I take? Whom should I marry? Where should I live? What car should I buy? What church should I join? Well, that one's a little easier, Twin City Bible Church, you know, but what should I wear to this event that's coming up? People want to know, what's God's will for me in these areas? How do I find it? Well, I have important, though possibly disappointing news for you. This aspect of God's will is not discoverable ahead of time, by anybody, any way. The reality is we do not find out God's sovereign will or his decretive will for all the particulars of our lives until it happens. His sovereign will unfolds in providence as we live our lives. I'm talking about looking ahead to know what his will is on these things. We can't do that. Yes, we can look back. We can look back in time and we can see his fingerprints on things and events, so to speak, just not ahead. So what do we do about the future? We make plans and we make decisions. And as we do that, we trust and know that the Lord is sovereignly working out his will in our lives. Now, some passages that apply, Proverbs 16, verse 9, the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Proverbs 20, verse 24, man's steps are ordained by the Lord. So, though God has revealed many things he expects from us, his commands, in other words, people want to know more than that. 
They want to know how God is going to direct their steps today, tomorrow, next week, next year. But in Scripture, we are never told to find God's decretive, unrevealed will before we make a decision. Nevertheless, it is common for people to go about wrongly trying to find that very thing, trying to find this aspects of God's will. Now, I put these on a slide, uh, some slides for you this morning. We're going to quickly look at what are the common unbiblical approaches that people frequently take to try to find this, to try to find God's sovereign will, which means approaches then to making decisions. And here's the first one. We'll call it the purely rational approach. Now, in this approach, pros and cons of some decision are considered. Put on a list even. Writing down the good points and the negative points. Put on a list to check to see which part of the list is longer than the other part or which side carries the most influence. You might hear this and go, The pastor's lost his mind. Of course, that's a good thing to do. We know he's lost his mind because he's using PowerPoint slides on a Sunday morning, first of all. (laughs) But beyond that, what's wrong with that? That doesn't sound so bad. I mean, shouldn't we weigh good points and bad points? Shouldn't we consider consequences of our decisions? And the answer is yes. This is often a helpful thing to do as far as it goes. The issue is there is more to consider than just the practical issues involved. What works is not necessarily what is best or what is right. Second, the mystical approach. In fact, all the ones that remain here in this little part of what we're doing in the seminar today are in some way probably connected to mysticism. But We'll give it its own number here, the mystical approach. When it relates to decision-making, mysticism is belief that God somehow speaks to you to give you direction. You have probably heard this. Well, God spoke to my heart. Or God told me to do this. That is claiming to get direct verbal revelation from God which he no longer gives. As you can see, even on the practical side, it's, it's almost hard to respond to somebody like that. I mean, how do, you, how do you argue against that? I mean, God spoke to their heart. I do like confusing people, actually, who say that, who hold that view. I like to respond with things like, you know what? God just spoke to my heart to tell me that you were wrong. And then what do they do? Number three, the prophetic proclamation approach. The prophetic proclamation approach. This is a form of mysticism, but it's the idea that somebody else has gotten a, quote, word of knowledge, and whatever they're preaching and telling you to do, especially God just spoke to me and said, you you need to give all your money to our ministry, things like that. God has revealed his will. Now, The second one and the third one are the very opposite, then, of the first one, opposite of the pragmatic, rational approach. That first one, I mean, you could leave it there and and think, well, that ignores God's perspective entirely, completely. 
That's true. But these, number two and number three, go to the extreme another, another direction, not even considering practical details at all, potentially. Fourth, the random scripture approach. The random scripture approach. This is looking for a verse of scripture in hopes of finding God's direction. You know, just opening up the Bible and wherever it opens or if the fan is on, wherever it blows the pages, you know, you put your finger down and there is God somehow guiding my choice. Well, that approach ignores proper hermeneutical principles of interpretation of verses. It takes verses out of context. This approach may even include using only part of a verse. Maybe it's not all the verse. It's just one little phrase in the verse that God is using. Well, that could be dangerous. It could be irrational even. I mean, take a verse like Philippians 2, verse 3. It makes this incredible statement, Philippians 2, 3. Do nothing from unselfishness or from selfishness or empty conceit. Remember that verse, you know, steam others as being more important than yourself, all that. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Someone could in error just say, you know, it's just the first two words God is using to direct me. Do nothing. So that's what I'm going to do. It's in the Bible. This is another example of mysticism, really, in essence. It's claiming to get some sort of secret interpretation from God. I mean, it's from a verse that he did write. But it's with an interpretation that no one else is making. It's just making the Bible say anything you want it to say. And obviously, we know from 2 Timothy 2.15, we can't do that. 2 Timothy 2.15 prohibits using Scripture that way. It tells us to handle accurately the word of truth. Number five, I hope you're sitting down for this one. The looking for peace approach. The looking for peace approach. This is very common. This approach assumes that God reveals his will to you that way by giving you some sense of calm or some sense of peace in your heart about a decision. A person says, you know, I, I just have a real peace about this. So I know it's the right decision. It's God's will. Listen, it's one thing for me to say, yeah, I'm pretty comfortable with this decision I've made buy this car, that's totally different than saying, and I know it's God's will that I do that because of this comfortability I have in my heart. That's a very nebulous way to go about decision-making, almost a hallmark sort of way, you know, listen to your heart. Very nebulous. This inner peace that a person senses can have absolutely nothing to do with whether a decision is a good decision or not. In fact, it's possible for someone to be totally at peace in the sin that they are continuing to commit, like an adulterous relationship. The bottom line is that the Bible never presents peace in the heart as a basis for making decisions. People try to take something out of Philippians 4 where it talks about the peace of God ruling your heart to try to use it for this, but that's not what it means in that passage. Number six, hope you're sitting down for this one too, the looking for signs approach, the looking for signs approach. This is the idea that certain circumstances 
a certain circumstance. That's the confirmation that God is giving me direction. Somebody could say something like this. You know, I was trying to decide between purchasing the red car or the blue car, and I didn't know what to do. I called one of my friends to come over just to talk with me about it and pray with me about it, and lo and behold, they wore a red shirt. So I knew at that moment God was giving me a sign. Now, there's another common version of this same one, still number six, this idea of the signs approach. It's, it's the sign of open doors. Very common. You know, God has opened the door for me to take this job, so I know it's the right decision. In other words, it's the idea that if circumstances all add up and make something easy for us, then it must be the right decision. I kind of like to confuse and play with those people as well. I'll say something like, you know, I don't know about you moving and taking that job in another state. I mean, instead of God opening a door and confirming that you should take this job and move to another city, perhaps it's actually a test from God to see if you're willing to stay here and be content. Well, which one is it, Pastor? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) There are some quotes in the bulletin that you ought to pay attention to when you get home, not now. But Jay Adams has a famous statement about open doors. I put it in there. He says something like this. You know, some open doors lead to open elevator shafts. (laughs) So we've got to be careful. The point is that it's completely arbitrary to look for signs or interpret circumstances or to decide that something is not God's will just because it's difficult or it is God's will because it's easy. I mean, it sure was easy for David to commit adultery with Bathsheba. A lot of circumstances sure came together nicely for him. But was it God's will? It's just so arbitrary. People can interpret signs and circumstances anything, any way they want. And two different people can interpret the very same circumstance in opposite ways. Basically, an open door is just an opportunity is what it is. It's an opportunity, but it must be evaluated. One more example in this same point about a signs approach, and you have to be older to even maybe heard this metaphor, but it's putting out a fleece. That goes back to Judges chapter 6. So you have to read Judges chapter 6 where Gideon, based on his actions of trying to figure out what, what God wanted to be done, he put out a fleece. So it kind of became a metaphor for the idea of making a demand of God. You put out this fleet. It's, it's a demand that he intervene in the circumstances in some way to indicate what decision we ought to make. One of the problems with that is it's taking a narrative portion of Scripture, which is what that is, something that we call descriptive. It's just describing what happened, trying to make it prescriptive. We should imitate it. Many things included in Scripture are not there for the purpose of imitation. In fact, keep in mind the balancing thought, Deuteronomy 6, verse 16. God said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. I mean, no doubt God is sovereign over all circumstances, but that does not mean he's using them to give us signs or some indication 
that this is the decision we ought to make. So in summary, none of these approaches are biblical methods, but instead are methods created by people. You know, the New Testament authors certainly assume that God does have a will. He has a plan. But they also assume that his will for future daily events and the lives of individual people is something that we are not able to know ahead of time. Not in some objective way. It's all subjective. Listen to these statements by Paul. Here's Paul with the gift of prophecy and other spiritual gifts. says in Acts 18, verse 20 and 21, he tells the people, I'll return to you again if the Lord wills. Said it to Corinth, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 18 and 19, said it there. I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. He did not say he was trying to find God's will about making the trip. He just made plans to do it. He wasn't looking for a sign. He wasn't determining how much peace he had in his heart about it. He simply expressed his desire. And if it was God's will, it would happen. If it wasn't God's will, it would not happen. Which fits with James chapter 4, right? We say we're going to go to such and such a city, James 4, 13 and following. You ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. The bottom line, God, God's plans for future daily events in your life and my life are unknowable. Deuteronomy 29, 29 puts both sides of God's will together there, God's revealed will and his unrevealed will. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, the secret things belong to the Lord, your God, but the things revealed belong to us so that we may observe the words of the law. That's another way to describe the pe- The problem here, people are looking for the secret things. They may even ask a pastor, what? What are the secret things? I don't know. They're secret. It's the things that God says belong to him alone. We have what's revealed to us so that we can obey the words of the Lord. Plus, there's another issue here. We're told in Scripture that our life is one that's characterized by by walking by faith, not by sight. That's another way to say what people are wanting, I think. They really want to walk by sight, which means there's something in the heart that enters into all these things when you're making decisions, especially for bigger decisions, and that is fear. People are fearful of taking responsibility for some significant decision. We just want God to spell it out for us. And in a sense, that's demanding to walk by sight, not by faith. So with all that said, on the wrong side, what is the right way to go about making decisions? Well, we're going to look at those principles now. Here are the basic principles of biblical decision-making, and it starts with this one. Number one, pray for wisdom. Pray for wisdom. Remember Solomon's great request of God? What was it? He asked for wisdom. And that fits with so much of what he says. He wasn't a perfect man. But it fits so much with what he said in the book of Proverbs about wisdom and about diligence in life. Proverbs 21, verse 5, the plans of the diligent lead surely to advantage. So when we make plans or make decisions, we should be diligent in seeking to make the wisest plans and the wisest decisions we can. So we pray for that. God, give me wisdom. I want to do your will. I know your will is perfect, God. 
Give me the wisdom so that the decisions I make are fitting in with that. And God, I know that you have the right as the sovereign God to edit my plans. Proverbs 19.21 says this, Many plans are in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. And God does often edit our plans. He also often directs our steps to a different path. I read Proverbs 16.9 before, but I'll read it again here. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. The great divine sovereign editor, so to speak. So we don't pray for supernatural signs. We don't pray for an internal peace. We don't pray for some dramatic coincidence. But we do pray. We acknowledge that God's in control of all things and we commit to him that his will is perfect and we know that and we want to do his will. So Lord, give us wisdom as we make these decisions. That's the way our elders pray. Give us your wisdom, Lord. And as we go through the three remaining steps, I want you to remember something about number one here. It goes with each of them. As we talk about number two, remember also pray for wisdom again. And pray for wisdom again. Number two, investigate. Investigate. We definitely should seek any information we can to help in making a decision. We gather facts. Proverbs 13, verse 16. Every prudent man, every wise prudent man acts with knowledge. Proverbs 21, verse 5. I read it before. Here it is again. The plans of the diligent lead to advantage. The diligent person who's not only praying for wisdom, but is investigating, gathering information. This is the necessary practical side of decision-making. So weighing pros and cons... Evaluating options, that is all part of the process, just not all of it. And keep something else in mind about gathering information. Gathering information includes seeking counsel. That's wise. Proverbs 12, verse 15, a wise man is he who listens to counsel. Proverbs 20, verse 18, prepare plans by consultation. Here's why seeking counsel is so helpful. Several reasons. It helps us identify blind spots we have in our thinking. Seeking counsel helps us evaluate all the facts and the information that we have gathered. Seeking counsel helps us even think of legitimate options that we haven't thought about. So seek counsel, just make sure you seek counsel from people who are trustworthy worthy. People that you observe and have a track record of stability and wisdom and biblical thinking. Avoid just friends who are yes people who will tell you, tell you anything you want to hear. Number three, search the scriptures. Search the scriptures. See what input the Bible does provide. God doesn't give us signs, but he does provide help for us in his word. Psalm 109, verse 105, his word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to our path. 
But there's two kinds of biblical input to consider, direct input and indirect input. Direct input is clear-cut statements that God says on some subject. We need to ask, does God in the Bible speak directly to my decision? This means then his revealed will, his moral will. We must never make a decision that clearly goes against anything God has commanded in his word. God does speak about the idea of a believer intentionally marrying an unbeliever, 1 Corinthians. God does speak about whether you should or shouldn't be dishonest at work or cheat on your taxes. You know, God, is it your will? Romans 13, other places, answers that for you. Maybe you just don't want to work at all. It's just easier to loaf. Well, 2 Thessalonians 3 is going to tell us something different about that. It's God's will to work somehow. The Bible, though, doesn't tell us what job to take. That's something different. So if God has given clear commands in Scripture, then we don't even need to figure out what decision to make. We just need to choose to obey what God has said. But then there's also indirect input. The Bible may not always give a direct command on a topic, but there's indirect input on really any issue. The Bible doesn't say specifically whom you should marry, but it says some specific things concerning what that relationship ought to be like leading up to marriage. The Bible sure speaks concerning sexual sin, as we'll see in 1 Thessalonians 4 down the road. The Bible doesn't say what kind of car to buy or what house to buy and so forth, but it gives input on how to properly handle finances. It gives input to us on how to be wise about our debt. Here's a great quote by Joel James that I put up there for you. I like how he says it. If you want to take out a Ferrari-sized loan on your Ford-sized income, God has commented on your decision to buy that car. I mean, God does tell husbands, love your wife sacrificially the way Christ loves his people. So if you're trying to decide about this car and your wife is saying, I just really don't like the color of that car, then husbands, don't buy it. How do we, how do we take in all the scripture says to have this indirect input in our thinking all the time? It's obviously imperative that our minds are saturated with the Word of God then. So we're thinking biblically. Here's another great quote. It's by the commentator William Plumer. He says this in his commentary, It is not superstitious but intelligent piety that God commands. Then he quotes Luther. Luther said, I have covenanted with my Lord that he should not send me visions or dreams or even angels. I am content with this one gift of the scriptures, which abundantly teaches and supplies all that is necessary, both for this life and that which is to come. Once again, in the bulletin, part of what I put in there for you are some helpful decision-making tips from a good friend of mine, Pastor Ken Ramey, who has spoken here before to our men Pastor Ken Ramey in Texas, and those tips are based on biblical principles. So learn those, incorporate those. Finally, after all that, number four is a shocking point to many people. Do what you want to do. Just do it. 
I mean, sometimes there is no clear biblical path to take. No option is overwhelmingly better than another. So once you've prayed for wisdom, and once you've gathered information, including you've gotten counsel, once you've settled what the Bible says and does not say, then all other things be equal. Do what you want to do. And then trust God. You trust God that His sovereign will will happen. Add this thought in here from Jay Adams. Uh, he wrote on Christian biblical decision-making. and he, one of his chapters, he has this principle called the waiting principle. It just means this, that once you've prayed and once you've investigated and once you've searched the Scriptures and you prayed again and you got more counsel and you're still just not sure what you want to do, he says, then, then just wait. You don't have all the information you need yet. Could come next week, next month, just wait. Well, pastor, if I follow all this, I mean, it's certainly easier to hide behind, well, God spoke to me. How can anybody argue with you? Except me, I will. Got peace in my heart. Pastor, if I don't hide behind all those and I just go about trying to make wise decisions, is it possible that a decision could be bad? Yes. It could because of a lack of information, perhaps, disobedience to God in some way, weighing, not weighing things wisely. We just need to see those situations as opportunities to learn from our mistakes, possibly repent from sin. We trust the Lord's providence on all this, and then we make another decision. So if a decision doesn't work out, God's will is not thwarted in some way. You haven't thwarted his will. God uses these times to teach us lessons. Throughout it, we are to trust God's sovereignty. How do I know that his will can never be thwarted? Because of Job 42, verse 2. Job tells God, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. That's what it says. So don't waste time and effort seeking to find out what you cannot find, God's decretive, unrevealed will. But when it comes to what God has revealed in his word, his moral will, then he does want us to know his will. So with that extra long introduction, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 to our text for today just one verse, verse 3, and not even the whole verse, I don't think. In our study of 1 Thessalonians, you'll see now why this prompted me to spend some time on this topic, but in our verse, this verse, verse 3, begins a section of the letter in which Paul is addressing now the issue of sexual ethics. Paul and his fellow missionaries, Timothy and Silas, they had ministered in Thessalonica, brought the gospel there, people got saved, they instructed them further in doctrine, then they had to leave the city. In all that instruction, they had already instructed the new believers there about God's standards, even on this topic, their sexuality. But certain members of the church had possibly disobeyed that teaching maybe rejected it, or at the very least, some in that church were being greatly tempted in this area. 
Now, Timothy had gone back to Thessalonica to spend some time with him to see what was going on, and he brought a report then to Paul, who was in Corinth when he wrote this letter. So, most likely, Timothy reported to Paul about what was going on in this area. So, here, the apostle calls them once again to a life of purity. Now, notice in verse 3, the Greek text begins with that little connector for. F-O-R. It's a conjunction that links what follows now to Paul's previous exhortation that we studied last week in verse 1 and 2. So verse 3 reads this, for this is the will of God. See, I told you we were going we to find God's will today and next time. A couple of clarifications, though. What will? This is referring to God's revealed will, his moral will, not his sovereign, decreed, decretive, unrevealed will. As I've already pointed out, we cannot know the particulars of the unrevealed will of God ahead of time. We find it as it unfolds in providence, day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute. And I need to say this, what follows now, this initial part of verse 3, is not an exhaustive discussion of God's moral will. You'd have to read all Scripture to get that. This instead is just one important dimension of His will. And it is a dimension of God's moral will that is discussed in many other passages of Scripture as well, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Of course, it doesn't matter how many times something's revealed to us as a command in Scripture. One verse or a hundred verses. God's expectation is that we obey it. I mean, how important is it, this thing, obedience to God's commands? Well, listen to several verses. Matthew 7, verse 21. Those sobering words of Christ. Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who's in heaven will enter. Matthew 12, verse 50, whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he's my brother and my sister and my mother. He's my family member, one who, does, who obeys the will of God. John 9, verse 31, we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Hebrews 10, verse 36 For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what's promised. And one more, 1 John 2, verse 17. The world is passing away, and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God is the one who lives forever. Now, caution as you hear all that. These verses are not teaching that it is our obedience to God's moral will that earns something that earns the forgiveness of sin or acceptance by God and therefore eternal life in heaven. Scripture's clear about that. Salvation cannot be earned. It's not merited in any way. A person is forgiven of their sin, past, present, and future, and accepted by God based solely on God's grace and through that individual's trust in the person and work and merit of Jesus Christ and that alone. But... It is obedience to the commands of Scripture that makes it evident that someone has genuinely put their faith and trust in Christ. Not perfection, 
but the direction of it, of a life, that I must take obedience seriously. And it is our obedience to the revealed will of God then that brings glory, even pleasure, to the Lord. Go back to that connecting word for. I said our verse connects with what's in verses 1 and 2. And verse 1, if you'll remember, made the point that we are to excel even more in our lives in light of all the doctrine that we are taught And by doing that, living in the light of that, we will be living a lifestyle that pleases God. Here's verse 1 again. We request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. So since our verse is connected to verses 1 and 2, we could say that doing the will of God is what constitutes, we could call it the positive way of living a life that pleases God. And as I pointed out last time, that should be the goal of our life, pleasing God. I mentioned to you 2 Corinthians 5, 9. That's a good life verse to memorize where Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, we have as our ambition, our goal, whether in the body or out of the body, to be pleasing to him. That's why he prayed this for the Colossian believers, Colossians 1, 9 and 10. We have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will, his revealed will, verse 10, so that you will please him in all respects. So back to our text. As Paul writes this, he has one aspect then of God's moral will that he wants to emphasize. And the first thing he does is define the one aspect in a broad, as a broad governing principle. This is the will of God, your sanctification. Experiencing sanctification in your life is God's will for you. Experiencing sanctification in your life, therefore, pleases God. Now, the term here for sanctification is not emphasizing so much the state that results, but the process of sanctification, which we've mentioned many times along the way, biblically, is the process of being progressively separated from sin and set apart to God's holiness. To say it another way, it's the process of being separated from worldliness and sin and being made more like Jesus. This process has a beginning. It begins at the moment of your conversion, your salvation, your regeneration. When we come to Christ, we are at that moment initially sanctified. We're initially set apart unto the Lord. Here's a verse, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11. Paul writes to the Corinthians who had all kinds of issues in their lives in the church. They failed in many ways, but they were still believers. He says in 1 Corinthians 6, 11, After mentioning certain sins, he says, such were some of you, but you were washed. That's salvation. You were sanctified. In this verse, that means initial sanctification, initial salvation. You were justified, another word for our salvation. So it starts initially, an an initial setting apart sanctification. Then after sanctification, God takes us through an ongoing process in which he uses all the experiences in our life to progressively grow us, to change us, to even more and more set us apart for himself. Ephesians 5 tells us that Christ died for that purpose 
to set apart a people for himself who would live holy lives. Ephesians 5, 25 to 27. In the section where husbands are told to love their wives the way Christ loves the church, it says in Ephesians 5, 25, Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her. Why? So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Why did Christ die? Not just so that we can go to heaven instead of hell. That's wonderful. But to create a bride, a people that would be sanctified, set apart for his purposes. The writer of Hebrews confirms that. Hebrews 10 verse 10. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That is our identity. We are the set apart ones. We are the sanctified ones. You could even say we are the holy ones. Colossians 3.12 puts it that way. Here's our identity, Colossians 3.12. We are those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved. We are God's elect. We are the holy ones, set apart unto him, and we are loved by him. And a primary tool, no doubt, in this progressive growth and sanctification is God's word. Jesus prayed for that very thing from the Father in John 17, verse 17. He prayed, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So yes, God is the ultimate agent of this change. He's the ultimate agent of our ongoing sanctification. And yet at the same time, Paul is writing this to believers because we as believers have a responsibility in this process as well. We are to say no to temptation to sin, no to worldly thinking. We're to say yes to pursuing holiness. I think the greatest verse on it from my perspective is Romans 6 verse 19 because this is how it works in moments of times. The choices that we make with our mind, our eyes, every aspect of our being. Romans 6 19. Just as you formerly presented your members, everything about yourself, as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, which just results in further sin and lawlessness. Romans 6, 19 goes on to say, so now, you, here's God's revealed will, moral command, you, present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. There's our responsibility. Our sanctification is an important aspect of God's will for our lives. In fact, our sanctification, our holiness, is a purpose even of God's sovereign decrees of election. Romans 8, 29. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. The goal of predestination is not simply our salvation, though it is that. It's put here in terms of Christ-like holiness. That's the goal. And that agrees with Ephesians 1 verse 4. Ephesians 1 4 says, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy. 
We'll see it in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Therefore, the evidence, you see, of being progressively sanctified is evidence of our salvation. Here's a final quote for you by the commentator um, Beale. I need to read the quote. It's going to be on the screen there. Those who do not break off from their former pagan ways of living should not be considered truly Christian and should certainly not be given assurance that their faith is genuine. He's just saying it only makes sense if this is the will of God for our lives. It only makes sense that we take it very seriously. And we're told to do that in Hebrews 12, 14. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Sanctification is the evidence that we're followers of Christ. No wonder it was the apostle's principal concern as he begins to discuss this with them. So what we find now in 1 Thessalonians is a call to us to live out God's will, which is a life of holy living. And that call is at the very heart of God's plans for his people. As Peter puts it in 1 Peter 1, God says, be holy as I am holy. Put it in more blunt terms, it's God's will. That you and I, if we claim to be his people, that we are different from those who are not his people. Bottom line there. Especially in this world in which we live, in this culture in which we live, this generation that is so debased and the world's influence can be so strong, we must remember it's God's will that we be different. Just keep in mind this, all of this I'm saying applies only to true believers. As I've already said, you cannot be saved by trying to obey the Bible. You're saved by faith and trust in Christ alone. But what a joy it is to live a life following Him, fulfilling the will of God that we can know what it means to live a holy life. Our Father, we thank you for this reminder of what it means to find your will and what it doesn't mean, that what our primary focus concern should be. At the end of the day, it's not houses and cars and clothes and where we go on vacation and all those kinds of things. There can be wise decisions we make and unwise decisions we make, but nothing thwarts your will. But Father, help us to be focused on what's revealed to us what we do know, what it means to please you with our lives and then making decisions to do what we want that we think is wise. I do pray for anyone here who's not a follower of Christ that you would open their heart to put their trust in him. For all of us who know Christ, help us to make wise decisions. In Christ's name, amen.